0: This morning we come to our fifth and final sermon in a series entitled Mission Unstoppable. Over the last five weeks, we have highlighted our 41-word mission statement, which can be found in your bulletin and on the screens behind me. And by now, some of you just might be able to recite all or a portion of it. So together, let's consider First Baptist Church Pelham is a Christ-centered faith family that exists to make disciples for a global impact by enjoying God through worship and prayer, by equipping disciples through teaching and serving, and by engaging the world through missions and evangelism. Over the last several weeks, we have identified our highest core value, which is to be Christ-centered. We have defined what it is to be a disciple uh, that has a global impact. We have already discussed enjoying God and equipping disciples. And today we come to the topic of engaging our world through missions and evangelism. Once again, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Matthew. Today, I want you to consider Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 28, I'll begin at verse 16, I'll conclude at verse 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe and obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. May God add his richest blessing to the reading the preaching understanding and the obedience to his perfect word you may be seated. A person's last words typically are memorable and meaningful. When you and I come to the very end of Matthew's gospel, we hear the important last words of Jesus. Jesus called his 11 disciples, told them to gather with him on the mountain. Now keep in mind, this is a post-resurrection appearance. Jesus had been raised for approximately 40 days. Several occasions he had appeared before his disciples And on this day, he tells them to meet him on the mountain. In Matthew's gospel, a mountain is always significant. It's a special spot where God does some great work. Uh, Take, for example, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever live. It is Jesus who proclaimed the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It is also on a mountain where Jesus is transfigured before three of his disciples. Peter, James, and John. In that moment on that mountain, Jesus. Uh, had the veil of humanity lifted, the glory of his divinity just kind of seeped through, his face and his skin radiated with the brilliance of the divine, his clothes became as white as a flash of lightning. And in that moment, Jesus had two celestial visitors, Moses and Elijah, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They came to speak about his upcoming exodon, his departure, his trip to Calvary, where he would pay a sinner's debt for you and for me and he would liberate us from our bondage and captivity to sin. It is on that mountain of transfiguration that Jesus is revealed as the mighty Messiah. And here at the end of Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus once again on a mountain. He calls his disciples together. We are told that the eleven appeared with him. There may have been more people on the mountain, maybe some other followers. We don't know. If we assume that, that's mere speculation. The only thing the text tells us is that the 11 disciples obeyed Jesus. They met him at the rendezvous point right there on that mountain. We are told that some of those disciples fell down in worship, but others doubted. The word doubted could better be translated as hesitated. I want to contend this morning that before all this was said and done, that all 11 of those disciples had their faces to the ground in acknowledging that Jesus is King of kings and the Lord of lords. Worship is paramount in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, Matthew, the Gospel writer, uses this idea of worship as bookends around his 28 chapters. In chapter 21, Uh, In chapter 1, we find that, uh, chapters 1 and 2, that the wise men travel from the east and they come bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what do these men do? They bow down to the Christ child and they worship him. Not only is he the exalted Christ as a child, but he's the exalted Christ post-resurrection. Because here in Matthew chapter 28, the disciples come and they fall down and they worship him. Here on this mountain. This place of significant instruction and teaching. Here on this mountain, the followers of Jesus gather and they worship him. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. For surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These words are commonly called the Great Commission. And I want to um, communicate this morning that this great commission is three parts. There are two eternal characteristics of Jesus that bracket one everlasting command of Christ. So there are two characteristics of our Lord. The first one is given in verse 18. The second one is... Given in verse 20. Those two characteristics involve his sovereign power, verse 18, and his spectacular presence, verse 20. Now, sandwiched between his power and his presence is the command of Christ, which is the plan of salvation that he has given to his disciples. That comes in verse 19. So verse 18 and 20, not only bracket verse 19 uh, chronologically, but also theologically, because his power and his presence go around his command to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth, Has been given to me. This statement communicates the sovereign power of Christ. This is an eternal characteristic of our Lord. He is sovereign, He always will be sovereign, and His sovereign power was on full display through the cross and resurrection event. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I realize that some people make a distinction between authority and power. Some people have authority, but they have no power. Some people have power, but they really have no authority. And while that is true in our world, I believe that when the Lord says that all authority has been given to him, that that word authority not only involves the authority to do it, but also the power to see it through. So Jesus has sovereign power. All authority has been given to him. When we stop and think about that, we have to make this conclusion that everything is under his authority. Everything is under his sovereign power. There is nothing in existence outside of his jurisdiction. Everything is under his authority. So life and death, are under his authority. The present and the future under his authority. Cancer and COVID under his authority. Every bird of the air, every beast of the field, every fish of the sea is under his authority. Every Elected official, every sanitation worker under his authority. Every king, every queen under his authority. Every president, every parliament, every congress member under his authority. Every individual, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman under his authority. Every problem, every predicament under his authority. Every success, every struggle is under his authority authority. Every home, every family, every marriage, every individual under his authority. Every city, every country, every dirt road is under his authority. Every atom, every proton, every neutron, every electron under his authority. There is nothing that is outside of his capacity. There is nothing that's outside of his jurisdiction. Everything is under his authority. So the bigger we make him, the smaller we make our property. Problems. Everything is a footstool of Christ because everything is under his authority. He really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one higher. There is no one greater. There is no one more majestic. He is Christ. In him we have life and our being. Jesus has all authority. Today I just came to remind you of the sovereign power of Christ because Jesus declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That affects the way that we approach life, doesn't it? That impacts the way we react to life, doesn't it? Because everything that we experience, everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible, everything is under his authority. This is an eternal characteristic of Christ. He has sovereign power. But the second eternal characteristic of Christ is that he has spectacular presence. Look with me at verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This promise of his abiding presence with his followers forever. This idea that Christ is with us and will never forsake us also forms bookends around Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, The angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, for what's conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will conceive, give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This idea that God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, that God is with us in the incarnation is also true post-resurrection. Because Jesus says one of his eternal characteristics is his spectacular presence with you and with me both now and forevermore. For surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this idea that Christ is with us, that God is with us is a pretty significant concept in Matthew's gospel. Because at the beginning of the gospel, at the end of the gospel... Matthew, the writer, references this idea of Emmanuel, God, being with us. For surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now at first read, that sounds like that Jesus is saying, listen, guys and gals, I'll be with you until the very end of the age. But when the end of the age comes, you're on your own. At first read, it kind of reads like that, doesn't it? Jesus says, For surely I am with you uh, both now until the end of the age. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. This phrase, this end of the age, really could better be rendered the completion of eternity, which is a reference to his second coming. So, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, is that surely I'm with you always to so the very end of the age means surely I'm with you always until I personally come to receive you unto myself. And then once I personally come to receive you unto myself at my second coming, then we will be, forever, be together forever throughout all of the ages. So what he's saying is there's never going to be a moment when you as a child of God are outside of the spectacular presence of Christ. Because Jesus will come and get you. He may come and get you one-on-one at your moment of death, which is really just kind of a a relocation from the terrestrial to the celestial. It's just uh, changing your addresses from earth to heaven. When Jesus personally comes to receive you unto himself, or it may not be one-on-one, but one-on-many at the rapture when Jesus comes and rescues and redeems the remnant, his church. But regardless... We have the promise that Jesus will never forsake us. For surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you until I come and get you. And when I come and get you, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. We will always be together. This is the eternal characteristic of Christ. Not only his sovereign power, but also his spectacular presence. So if you stop and consider the presence of Christ, beloved, There is never a time when Jesus turns his back on you. There's never a moment when Jesus aborts you. There's never a time when Jesus abandons you. He is with you in all of your faithfulness and in all of your foolishness. He is with you in your moments of success and your moments of sin. He is with you in your moments of delight, in your moments of disobedience. He's with you in your times of pleasure and in your times of pain. There is never a moment, friend, when you as a child of God are are turned away from the Lord. Jesus never forsakes you. These are his eternal characteristics, his sovereign power and his spectacular presence. Now those sandwich his one command. It's in verse 19. The command says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'm sure that as the early disciples heard that command, which, by the way, is the command to make disciples of all the nations, those rednecks thought to themselves, how in the world are we going to take the good news gospel to all the nations? I mean, in the first century, they were drastically limited in communication, technology, transportation and travel. How were they logistically going to take the gospel to all the nations? This must have overwhelmed them. And even today, here we are some 2,000 years later. It's still an overwhelming task, isn't it? Today, there are 7.8 billion people on planet Earth. And nearly 5 billion of them are outside of Christ. Is there anybody in the room outside of the pastor on the, pl- on, the, on the platform who sees this as an overwhelming task? I mean, this is overwhelming. 7.8 billion people and nearly 5 billion of them are outside of Christ. Those are the ones that we need to take the gospel to and we need to make disciples of the nations. That's the nations. I don't know about you, but that seems overwhelming to me that we are called, we, we are called. To take the gospel to billions upon billions of people. And even though we're 2,000 years later, we still are limited in our technology. We're limited in our ability of transportation and travel. I mean, we're, we're still limited in our ability to communicate to all the nations with all the languages. I mean, we stop and consider that and we think, how in the world are we supposed to do that? Let me just remind you of a couple of things. Number one, we never go in our strength and our power. Jesus did not call us to do this in our strength. Remember his two eternal characteristics. We go in his sovereign power and with his spectacular presence. It's because of his power and his presence that we're able to go communicate his plan of salvation. So we do not go in our own strength. And furthermore, I would add that not only do we not go in our strength, but God has not changed his plan of salvation. It's still the same as it's always been. As early as Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the Lord said to Father Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse whoever curses you. And all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. All the nations on earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. So that you read in a place like John chapter three, verse sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes upon him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This mission that God has commissioned us to do has not changed. For God's people throughout the ages, from beginning of time to the end of time, from Genesis to Revelation, throughout all of human history, we've only had one plan of salvation and it's explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we communicate the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross, that though we are sinful, God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, and Jesus, the perfect God-man, fully God, fully human. He died on the cross in your stead, in your place. He took the punishment that you deserve and I deserve and he took every last drop of God's holy hostility and righteous condemnation and Jesus died in our place. His dead body was taken off the cross, placed to a borrowed grave, but on the third day Jesus got up. On the third day Easter happened. On the third day the tomb could not hold the Author of life and Jesus burst forth. So we communicate this gospel story, which has not changed. It's the same story. It's the same plan of salvation. So we do not go in our own strength. We are bracketed by His sovereign power and His everlasting presence. And we realize that what we communicate is not a halftime adjustment. Nothing's changed here. It's the same message. So we are to take this Message of the gospel to the nations. Jesus gives one command in verse 19. Make disciples of all the nations. It does beg the question, what is a disciple? What is a disciple that Jesus wants us to make? And I've shared before in previous sermons that I have I've begged, I've borrowed, otherwise stolen, a working definition of a disciple from John MacArthur. John MacArthur says that a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. A disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. That the moment you come to faith, from that moment on, you are a lifelong believing learner of Christ. You exist to know Christ and to make him known. He is the object of your Mind. He is the affection of your heart. Uh, he is the first one you think about in the morning. He's the last one you think about at night before you lay your head down on the pillow. I mean, Jesus is the object of your life. So a disciple is one who is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. I think that uh, tragically in the church, we have made a dichotomy between evangelism and discipleship. It's a division that I don't think Jesus would endorse. I don't think it's anywhere recorded for us in the sacred scripture. I've been told what you've been taught that evangelism is introducing somebody to Jesus. Discipleship is telling them or showing them how to follow Jesus. And I want to contend this morning that if you've been introduced to Jesus, you ought to be changed by Jesus and you ought to have a desire to live for Jesus. Friends, that's a disciple of the Lord. One who has been introduced to him. One who has been transformed by him. And one that has an ultimate desire to live for him. Because of this division dichotomy between evangelism and discipleship, as if they are two separate things. Because of this division, there are sometimes experiences that I have that go something like this. I may stand in front of a casket of a 58-year-old man. And the best thing I can tell you about that man is that at the age of eight, he prayed a prayer at Vacation Bible School. But for the last 50 years, he's not darkened the door of the church. For the last 50 years, he's truly demonstrated little, if any, fruit in keeping with that repentance. And as the minister overseeing that funeral, The best thing I can say is at the age of eight, he prayed a prayer and said a few words. And some of his buddies say he was a good old boy. And I've got to be honest with you, friends. When I stand before the Lord, all I have, I don't want it just to be that this guy said a few words and prayed a a prayer and he's a good old boy. No, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear the words of Christ where he says, you know what? I know you and you know me. You have known me and you've made me known. I have been introduced to you. I have transformed you. I have changed you. And you have a desire to live for me. I'm not saying that we're perfect people, but I am saying that we are saved people and we personally know our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, friends, this is the disciple that Jesus wants us to make. Somebody who's been invited to trust Jesus, someone who's been changed by Jesus, someone who has a desire to live for Jesus. That's a disciple of the Lord. But still, once again, we ask the question, but how do we make this type of disciple? Now, in verse 19, I told you there is one command. Uh, Grammatically, there is one imperative and three participles. Every English teacher in the crowd is saying, yes, preacher, I know exactly what you're talking about. And those of us who are not English teachers say, I have no idea what you're talking about and I don't even know if I care about what you're talking about. But to say an imperative is to say that's one command. A participle shows you how that command is executed. Many times in English, a participle um, ends in I-N-G. And so such is the case for a few of these participles in uh, verse 19. The command is, make disciples. The participle, going, baptizing, and teaching. I know your English translation renders it that therefore go and make disciples. You think to yourself, well, well, the imperative, the command is go. He's saying y'all go, therefore y'all go. But literally the text reads, therefore as you are going, Make disciples of all the nations. So Jesus says that this ought to be a preoccupation of your mind. This ought to be something that you think about frequently, that every day you need to think to yourself, okay, as I am going, who is the Lord gonna put across my path that I need to do my best to help that individual become a disciple of the Lord? Someone who is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. So as I am going to work, to school, to the ball field, to church, to the gas station, to the grocery store, on vacation. As I am going on a mission trip, as I am going on a business trip, as I am going, I am looking for opportunities to see, Lord, who are the individuals you place across my path who need to be a lifelong believing learner of Christ? As you are going. Now, friends, let me ask you, How many days do you wake up and honestly ask the Lord, Lord, help me to see the people the way you see them. And as I am going, give me your eyes to see. Most of the time, I'm like you and you're like me. Most of the time we get up and we have an agenda for the day before the day even starts. We've got to do this form, we've got to fill out this paperwork, we've got to see this client, we've got to go to this place of employment, we've got to do this task, we've got to write this prescription, we've got to see this patient, we've got to take our son to this location, we've got to drop off our daughter at that practice event, we've got to go here, we've got to do that, and we run and we run, and we've got all kinds of things to do, and we measure the success of our day, whether or not we fulfilled everything, that we had at the beginning of the day by the time we get to the end of the day. And friend, I wonder, how many times do you live your life in such a way where you say, God, as I'm going today, help me to see people the way you see them. Give me opportunities and help me to have the courage to take those opportunities that as I'm going to the grocery store, which everybody has to do, as I'm going, help me to see people the way you do. And there just might be somebody who needs to hear the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today just might be the day for that person when they become a lifelong believing learner of Christ. As you are going, you make disciples. Now, the evidence that those conversations are fruitful is that some of those people will receive him by faith. Listen clearly to what I said. Some of those people will receive him. If you have the courage to speak the good news of the gospel, I promise you there will be some who reject, but not all will reject. Some will receive him by faith. And the evidence that they receive him by faith is that they follow in believers' baptism. Because Jesus says that as you are going, you are making disciples. And the evidence that that person is a disciple is that they are baptized in the name of of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That baptism is a public profession of your faith to a watching world. That that a person's baptism is the announcement of their allegiance when they say to the world, I am committed unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That as a person goes through the waters of baptism, That baptism signals a significant turning point in their life. Now, notice, I did not say that the baptism saves them. No, it does not. Their explicit faith in the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross saves them. But their baptism is their announcement to a watching world. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. I don't know that Jesus necessarily is giving us an equation or a formula But he does say that as you are going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We are baptized in the name of the Trinitarian God. I want you to notice that it doesn't say names plural. We're not baptized into the names of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We are not polytheistic, we are monotheistic. We believe there is one God, this one God of the Bible, this one God of the universe is a Trinitarian God of truth and grace. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three persons in one. We believe in one God. So he says, baptizing in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Bible, the name signifies essence and character. So we are baptized in the name, in the character, in the essence of God Almighty. So that his righteousness is our righteousness. His innocence is our innocence. His essence cascades over us. Now I know I'm a Baptist preacher. But even if I wasn't a Baptist preacher, I really hope that I would believe that the Baptists do it really well when it comes to this thing of baptism. Because we believe in believer's baptism by immersion, that a believer, a person has to come to the place where they acknowledge that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, and the only Savior that's suitable is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's believer's baptism, and the word in Greek is baptismo, and it means to dip or to immerse. Now, however you visualize that, that has to mean you get completely wet, to dip or to immerse. It's not a sprinkle. It's, it's not just a little bit here and a little bit there. It is to immerse. It is to dip. To Baptismo means to, to, to have believer's baptism by immersion. I think that uh, the Baptists do it well because symbolically we say that we've been buried with Christ We've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. What a beautiful portrait of that. What a beautiful picture of that in baptism. Now I realize that not every denomination baptizes with the same mode and method that we do. But I think that we are, are pretty close to being as close as possible to the biblical perspective of baptism. Now, I have other Uh, preacher friends of other denominations and, and we have healthy conversation about it and that's okay they can be wrong right because I really believe that when Jesus talks about baptizing I think he's talking about believers baptism by immersion which is a first symbol and sign a sign of allegiance to a watching world that hey I identify as a follower of Jesus I'm a lifelong believing learner of Christ so we we baptize But there's a third participle, and don't miss it. This is the one that gets omitted by far too many of us. Not only is there going and baptizing, but there's also teaching. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. There's something about making disciples that requires a teaching component. That obedience is not necessarily caught, but it is taught. So we are called to make disciples. In making disciples, we are teaching them to obey everything that Christ has given to us. Some of your translations say that we are to teach them to observe. And observe, some of you say, may just be a general glance. No, the word observe means that that we are to teach them to obey fully. Not just with their minds and their hearts, but with their actions. That they are to obey fully the commands of Christ. So that begs the question if you are a disciple, who are you discipling? Who are you teaching? Right now, who are you teaching to be a deeper, broader, lifelong believing learner of Christ? I think we have to ask that, and we have to answer that. Who are you discipling? Now, some of you may quickly say, well, I, I'm discipling my children, and well, you should. You should disciple your children. Parents' primary responsibility is to help shape their children for Christ. But don't just use your children as an excuse. If you say that you are discipling your children, then actually disciple your children. Teach them what you have been taught. Take them through the gospel. Uh, Speak to them over some type of curriculum, or, or uh, just take the scripture and, and just walk through that scripture with your children. Some of you say, well, I'm trying to disciple my grandchildren. That's great, and that's fantastic, and well, you should, but make sure you're doing it. Make sure that you are actively teaching them to observe and obey everything that's been commanded unto you, because we are to receive the word and put into practice. One of the best ways we receive the word and put it into practice is what we've been taught, we teach somebody else. What we've been told, we tell somebody else. What we've been shown, we show to somebody else. Because if we're a growing disciple, then we receive more of the word and put more of it into practice. And then we receive more insight into the word and we put more of that insight into practice. And then later we receive even deeper, more insight and we put that into practice. Why would God give you any more insight into his word if you're not putting into practice the insight he's already given you? So to be a disciple is to receive the word and put into practice. There's a component where iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, one person sharpens another, that what we've been told, what we've been taught, we pass on to somebody else. So who are you discipling? Jesus said, This is the disciple that I want you to make as you go, as you baptize, and as you teach, I want you to make lifelong believing learners of Christ. So I'll simply ask it this way: What's your what, where's your where, and who's your who? What's your what? Where's your where and who's your who? Since a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ, what are you learning? Since a disciple is one who takes the gospel somewhere, where are you going? And since a disciple makes a disciple of someone else, who are you trying to reach? If a specific person doesn't come to your mind in three seconds or less, then you're not being intentional enough. What's your what? Where's your where? Who's your who? What are you learning? Where are you taking the gospel this year? And who are you trying to reach? Friends, the goal of this sermon series is to get to this fifth sermon where we are discussing engaging our world in missions and evangelism. And I hope and pray that the invitation of this sermon goes far beyond the sanctuary and far beyond the altar of God and spills over into conversations with some of our mission partners and commitments under some of our mission trips. Because as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, We are called and commissioned to make disciples of the nations. This is our purpose. Our purpose is not to make decisions. Our purpose is to make disciples. Our purpose is not to make money. Our purpose is to make disciples. Our purpose is not to build our own kingdom. Our purpose is to build the kingdom of Christ. This is who we are. This is why we exist. We exist so we can answer the questions of what's my what and where's my where and who's my who. We exist to make a disciple for a global impact. Now, quickly, I'll add, you cannot make what you are not. So are you a disciple of Christ? I'm not asking, have you ever prayed a prayer? Have you ever gone to vacation Bible school and filled out a commitment card? I'm not asking, have you ever attended an event where you responded publicly? All those things are great, and God works in all of those. And if that's your testimony and it's legitimate and true, I'm not diminishing it in any way. But for some people, that's all they have. I am not asking. Have you prayed a prayer and filled out a card? I am asking, are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a lifelong believer of the Lord? Do you make it your aim to know him and make him known? Have you been somebody who has been introduced to Jesus, transformed by Jesus, and you have an inward desire to live for Jesus? Are you a disciple? If you're not, be honest with yourself and be honest with the Lord, and today can be the day of your salvation. Today, come to Christ in faith. If you are a disciple, then know that your purpose is to make other disciples. What does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to make disciples of the nations. Whether we go across the street or across the globe, he wants us to make disciples. We go in his power and by his presence, so we automatically have the victory. We go in his power and his presence. He gives us his plan of salvation. We just take that, and as we go about life, we make disciples. And the evidence is, They follow in believer's baptism for they're baptized in the name, character, and essence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them to obey everything that God has commanded unto us. Friend, if you are a disciple, we are called and commissioned by Christ to make disciples. So today, hear me clearly. I want to join you, and I ask for you to join me As we engage our world through missions and evangelism and we make a difference on this blue marble called earth for the glory and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Won't you today join me to engage our world for Christ? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that people are thinking and reflecting and processing. And Father, if there's someone here who today acknowledges I am not a disciple of the Lord, let today be the day of salvation. Father, if there are disciples here, help us to be intentional, not wasting our time, but to be intentional about making disciples of somebody else. Lord, show us who that individual needs to be. And Father, help us to follow an obedient commitment unto Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.